Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin podcast number 26 in our series in the second half of American history. In podcast 25, we took a look at the presidential election of 1932. We saw that the Republicans were more than confident that they'd be able to win a second term, uh, keeping Herbert Hoover in the White House. But as we found out, of course, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt defeated him. We looked at many of the different aspects of the New Deal, such as the creation of, after the reorganization of the banks, the creation of the FDIC, stock market organization and security uh, guarantees with the Securities Exchange Commission. We looked at the Townsend Plan, which would give us the modern-day social security system. We also looked at some of the massive public works through the National Recovery Act as well, with the specific focus on electricity, with the creation of the Hoover Dam, and the unbelievable amount of problems that had to be overcome with laying so much concrete in such a short amount of time, which again, we looked at as well, all the way up to some modern 21st century examples of how that Hoover Dam is still benefiting the people and the American residents in the southwestern part of the United States. We ended with, however, not only talking briefly about prohibition being repealed because of state governors needing the sales tax revenue, but I also looked at one of the uh, unsung or under represented individuals in the Roosevelt administration because she specifically didn't have an appointed elected position, and that was the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. So even though their marriage had been on the rocks for well over 10 years by the time he was elected president in 1932, for the good of the country, for her commitment to her marriage, despite Franklin having uh, at least, if not more than an emotional relationship with another woman, Eleanor, Eleanor stuck with her husband through, literally, as we'll find out, through to the end, and when Franklin Roosevelt dies on April 12, 1945, but she sticks with him for the betterment of the country as well, becoming his eyes and ears, as we talked about, and I gave some examples of that in the, the end of the 25th uh, podcast, but I ended with this uncertainty that Eleanor Roosevelt had when Winston Churchill, the then Prime Minister of Great Britain, would come to the United States to talk about war strategies with Franklin, with uh, President Roosevelt, uh, different strategies to try to overcome and get America, much less the world, out of the Great Depression. They had so many major problems which to discuss. And Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill hit it off practically upon their first meeting to the point that both men truly, really, really enjoyed one another's company. Uh, and as I stressed in that, at the end of that podcast, it was literally to the point where 
I, Franklin Roosevelt became giddy when he knew the prime minister would be coming to the United States and of all places, of course, staying, of course, they're in Washington, D.C. and at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right there at the White House. So when he the prime minister showed up, though, again, the, he and Franklin always hit it off. They immediately would uh, retire to one of their uh, studies or the president's meeting rooms and catch up on old times, catch up on current situations, et cetera. But then Eleanor noticed several, they may, they may not even that many have been that many days, a few days into each visit with president of the prime minister that her husband, Franklin, uh, despite being in better spirits and in a better mood, also seemed a lot more fatigued or a lot, a lot more tired, or at least got tired earlier in the day. Uh, she was noticing that he had bags under his eyes. He wanted to take a nap. Uh, other aides had said that they noticed that he was nodding off in meetings during the day. And, and she just couldn't put her finger on it because he was still going to bed at the same time every night, waking up at the same time, although again, more and more difficult to get him out of bed in the morning. And that reasoning didn't uh, occur to her until one night in one of the prime minister's visits, Eleanor had woken up and they slept in separate bedrooms. The president was in his own room and Eleanor was in her room. And she got up, walked out into the hallway. We believe it was simply to use the, the bathroom. And as she passed Franklin's room, his light was off, which of course you would expect. Hello, it's about, again, the record has it about 2.30 in the morning. And then she passed by his study and saw a light coming up from underneath the door. And she thought, oh, okay, you know, world situation, tension, the Great Depression, that's what's waking him up. And he's retreating to his study, maybe to come up with ideas, to research, to read. She didn't know what, but all she did know is that it's 2.30 in the morning and the president needs to go to bed. So just as she was about to knock on the door, she heard what to her was a funny sound. It was a little kind of like a clink or a click, and then a couple of fast clinks, and then a couple of clinks more. And then she heard voices, voices just saying, not even sentences, words, hold, I'll raise, fold. And these are coming from different people. And Eleanor thinks to herself, she's quite savvy. She's like, this, what she's hearing, she's not hearing. But maybe, obviously, she is here. So she's fighting with herself whether to go in this room or not. And the moment she hears an expression of, of giddiness or, or somebody's happy because they obviously had won something, she hears all these poker chips get pulled over to one side of the table. And with that, she pushes open the door to yell at Franklin and most likely just Churchill to go to bed. She is horrified when she plows into the room and sees five men around the table, the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Secretary of the Treasury Hans Morgenthau, Secretary of State Cordell Hall. And I'm missing somebody. There we go. Secretary of War Henry Stimson. They are not only around that table playing poker, they are in their skivvies, meaning no T-shirts, just undershorts. That's it. And in case, you know, the reader who might not be your listener here, who might not be familiar with how to play high stakes poker, the reason you don't have 
literally, almost literally, any clothes on is because you don't want an opportunity to save a card or to hide a card. The old expression, oh, so-and-so had an ace up their sleeve. It's not going to happen at this poker game because nobody has sleeves on in order to tuck an ace up there. She is horrified when she sees it, but this is not uncommon in terms of men playing high-stakes poker. What's more is she sees a lot of quick, nervous movement in the back of the room because the five men, the secretaries of state, treasury, and war, are stunned as they're looking up at her. Franklin Roosevelt doesn't know what the heck to say. Churchill won't take his eyes off the pot in the middle of the table. But these, this movement from the back of the room, young men also in their skivvies that are waiting in the back of the room because if any of the men need the bathroom, they forfeit their turn. Well, rather than that happen, they yank one of the men to take the place of their own place while they relieve themselves or go get a drink or something to eat or what have you, because this game was already on for hours and would go on for more hours had the first lady not, shall we say, dropped in for a visit. As her face turned red and clearly a look of anger started to envelop her, the aides were the first ones to jump out of their seats, grabbing their clothes, trying to get out of the first lady's view as quickly as possible. Simultaneously, these four aides are running around. The fifth aide, so unbelievably nervous, grabs his clothes, opens a door, runs smack into the middle <laughs> of a closet, doesn't know what the heck to do, turns around and stays there for a couple of seconds, and then finally gets the gumption to come out and runs out into the hallway. Okay, well, those five are gone. Hans, Morgenthau, Stimson, and... Um, uh, Morgenthau, Stimson, and Hull, they grab their clothes, they take off, right? Whatever's on the table, that's it. But that's it. Franklin Roosevelt, where's he going to go? He's in a wheelchair. This is his study. His bedroom is right next door, which he has an interconnecting door for. There's really nowhere for him to go. Churchill, how about you? Oh, no. Churchill's smart enough to know. If Roosevelt backs away from that table... And there's no aides to take the place of anybody else that left. Churchill wins that pot. He won't even make eye contact with Eleanor Roosevelt because he could care less that she's there. She's wondering, he's wondering, Rose Franklin, what are you going to do? Franklin Roosevelt, under his breath, tersely says, okay, Winston, come on, get out of here. We'll get, just go. Uh-uh. There's a hand to be finished here. Roosevelt is seething, finally throws up his hands and wheels away from the table. And with that, Churchill puts those two beefy arms out. He grabs that pot of, of chips, of course, resembling a lot of money, uh, no different perhaps than the uh, armed or metal mechanism takes the bowling pins out of the end of the uh, bowling alley. And he is as giddy as can be. And with that, he then decides to grab his drink right next to him, stand up right in his boxers, look at the first lady and say, good evening, or perhaps shall we say, good morning, Mrs. Roosevelt. Big smile on his face, no clue that she's angry or he doesn't care, we'll never know. But her response clearly drives home the point about how she's feeling. She simply points to the door, steps away from it, and tersely says to Churchill, get out. Churchill says, oh, no, no reason for that, Mrs. Roosevelt. I'm sorry that's your reaction to this poker game, but I'm sorry, ma'am. This is a men's only game. In fact, in the history of poker, 
get out. She screams again and points to the door. Franklin Roosevelt in his wheelchair is doing everything he can to motion Winston to get the heck out of the room while he still has his jugular attached to him. And Churchill, just beside himself now, finally beginning to dawn on him. So sorry, Mrs. Roosevelt. I misunderstood. Well, Franklin, what a wonderful night it has been. Here's to you. And he proceeds to hold up the drink. And just as he's about to sip it, Mrs. Roosevelt steps closer to him, points to his face and the drink, and says, if you were my husband, I would poison that drink. And Churchill looked right at her, not missing a beat, big smile, gives her a wink and says, and you, madam, if you were my wife, I would gladly drink it. And down the hatch, he finishes the drink and she screams and he grabs his cash and he flies out the door. Now, it is beyond a funny but accurate story as to the relationship that Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt uh, had between one another. Eleanor Roosevelt, she didn't kick him out of the White House. She still knew he was good for Franklin. Yes, admittedly, the poker games, yeah, let's just say they kind of went by the wayside permanently, or at least they didn't go on that late. Uh, occasionally, though, I've had students say, well, didn't Churchill actually say that to another woman or to somebody else? Knowing Churchill, he probably said it so many times, even he wouldn't have been able to remember by the time he died in the 1960s. But the fact of the matter is, he called it as it was. And he was good for Franklin Roosevelt in the middle of their initial visits when it was just the Great Depression that was plaguing both nations. But obviously, as things would get even more serious when a Second World War would break out. The final part, though, that I'd like to say about the Great Depression is if you have the opportunity, you could either just write this down or uh, press the pause button after I give you this website. But regardless of where my American listeners live, I encourage you to go to a website called thelivingnewdeal.org backslash US. So again, that's livingnewdeal.org backslash US. When you get to that page, you not only can plug in what state that you live in, you can even find a specific city or town within that state. And if you look at, even if your specific city isn't mentioned, if you just look at the number of different cities within your state, believe me, I've looked at them all, it is mind-blowing how many New Deal projects between 1933 and by the time the New Deal ends in World War II benefited from some of the legislation of the New Deal program, including the appropriate funding that went along with it. So all of these, as I say, were just excellent things, starting again with the middle to the end of the last podcast through to now with these massive public works, the, uh, the Hoover Dam, the uh, role of Eleanor Roosevelt, and then finally looking even at how specific states benefited from the New Deal, because some of those New Deal, New Deal projects are still in use today. Uh, as well as in my home state of Illinois, where I was born and raised, as well as where I'm living now in Ohio. Now, admittedly, too, it can it can seem that I have Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill, that's good, that I have Franklin Roosevelt on a pedestal here. And I'm not saying the man doesn't deserve, pardon my distraction there, I got a 
picture of Roosevelt here to my left with all the presidents. I always feel like he's looking down on me when I talk about him uh, more so than any of the other presidents. But while it may seem like I have him on a pedestal, I'm not here to knock him down from that. There is reason, reasons, excellent reasons why he has been considered one of our top three presidents, hands down. But that's not to say that he was a perfect human being, a perfect uh, president uh, by far. In terms, yes, he did go too far at times. He did feel as though that the power was in his hands and he could push back on the separation of powers by the Congress as well as the United States Supreme Court, our judicial branch. Yes, as Churchill, excuse me, as Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal legislation started to get challenged in the legal system. Yes, many of the Supreme Court, many decisions that may have made its way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court overturned accusing Franklin Roosevelt of presidential overstretch, overreach, uh, power gone unchecked too far, to the point that even Franklin Roosevelt became an enemy of his own self in a way, when in 1937, after he was swept into another landslide victory in the beginning of his second term, as he re re uh, referred to the Supreme Court as those blasted justices, actually attempted to try to overcome that. With many of the New Deal acts considered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, Roosevelt analyzed who was deciding time after time who was voting against him or ruling against him. And it turned out it was most, most of the older justices that were appointed by prior Republican presidents. Franklin Roosevelt did everything that he could to get those justices to retire. Even looking at the Constitution, various sections to see is there something that's been people have been missing for the past de several decades that he could then force the Supreme Court's hand to make these older justices retire, especially those over 70. And of course, he would find nothing. That's when FDR attempted to have legislation written up, allowing him to appoint a new justice for every justice on the bench that was over the age of 70. This was arguably a brutal attempt at presidential overreach or overreach by the executive branch of the United States government. There is a reason why our founding fathers have those extreme measures to guarantee the separation of power within the United States. Allowing the executive branch to essentially, to use the word that was used at the time, pack the judicial branch with justices that would favor Franklin Roosevelt would not only be overreach, it would be blurring the lines and minimizing the important aspect and the important tenets that the judicial branch of the United States government does for the American people. Thankfully, a majority, including high-ranking Democrats, came out against Roosevelt on this. Even that would not dissuade him. It was not until one person in particular walked right up to him in the Oval Office, pointed to the desk, and threatened to tear up the legislation if he did not stand down. And it was only then that Roosevelt came to his senses. Who was an individual that could speak to him that way would be none other than Eleanor Roosevelt, once again coming to the aid of her husband, who would silently allow him to be eventually ranked as one of our top three presidents. So 
that brings us to the end of the discussion on the New Deal. I say the end of the discussion because the New Deal is going to go on. Excuse me, New Deal. The Great Depression is going to continue. Franklin Roosevelt, despite all these efforts, does not end the Great Depression specifically. We will never know what of those measures, if any, or all of them, would have eventually brought America and by extension the world out of the Great Depression. The reason being is one of the fastest ways to bring a country out of an economic slump is unfortunately war. And that was looming on just the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, which then we've come to the final part of this, where we come back to foreign affairs and we see just what is going on in Winston Churchill's area of the world, starting in Great Britain and then moving on from there, specifically to France and Italy, which had leadership vacuums and they were destitute as a result of the ongoing legacy, negative legacy of the Treaty of Versailles that resolved World War I. As I, perhaps you remember when I discussed this at the end of World War I, Germany specifically was to blame for the war and was, was slapped with a horribly high fine or retribution in which she had to pay back. That with a leadership vacuum, with the German people feeling as though the world had turned their backs on them and their faces were in the mud, it is no surprise that they would have been open to upcoming dictatorships and command economies. To the point that within Germany itself, to talk about a leadership vacuum, to give you an idea, I'm going to read briefly here from a book called On Hitler's Mountain by Ermgard Hunt. So again, this book is On Hitler's Mountain by Ermgard, that's I, M as in Mary, G-A-R-D as in dog, Hunt, H-U-N as in Nancy, T as in Tom. Please know that what I'm reading here, I'm not reading to my listeners simply because I read it in a book. What you're going to hear, what I will describe to you as a picture in this book is horrifying. And therefore, I would not be reading this to you. I would not read this to my classes if I could not verify it with Ermgard Hunt herself. And I don't mean via an email or a letter. I sat down with her face to face. She showed me what she was talking about. It is on page 21 that I read this brief excerpt. When she received her week's pay in the morning, now she meaning her mother, she had to wait until her lunch break to run with her wad of paper money to the nearest bakery. But by that time, the Reichsmark, the German currency of the time, had fallen so far that she could not buy a single loaf of bread with her six days wages. The large rectangular bills were stamped with a staggering number of zeros. Mother could not even puzzle out the denominations. Millions, billions, more. By November 15, 1923, the high point of inflation, the United States dollar equaled 4.2 billion Reichsmark. 
end of the quote, which ended on page 22. That is a verbal slash numerical way of describing an economy that simply doesn't exist anymore. As she goes on to write, on days when mother was not able to even buy bread, she would search through the garbage cans outside wealthy people's homes, hoping to find potato peels and other scraps. My mother nor my grandmother would ever forget the humiliation of those days. Now, I'm ending this with a quote there. And again, that was on page 21 and 22. Please note that Ermgard Hunt, I'm going to come back to her book. And the reason being is because what you hear there, when I was talking about, again, just how bad the living conditions, the economic conditions were in Germany, that was the case through much of Europe. But arguably, Germany was faring, in some cases, the worst due to the war reparations as dictated and outlined in the Treaty of Versailles. Mind you, Ermgard Hunt, who is a young teenager when World War II breaks out. Later on in the book, she talks about how she and her sister were so excited on one particular Christmas morning fully anticipating that they would not receive any Christmas gifts. How could they? Nobody decorated. There was no money for anything. So imagine this young teenager and her sister walking down to the living room from their bedroom upstairs in their small home and looking at the area where they usually had their Christmas tree and blinking a few times they actually see something. No, it's not a Christmas tree, but it is the gifts that would have gone under that tree had it been there. They run over and each child, both of the sisters, grabbed the one with their name on it. Her sister received an apple. Ermgard received an orange. Now you might be asking, well, that's food. How is that a Christmas gift? Let me explain, as Ermgard Hunt writes. Sure, they had fruit the day before. They had vegetables the day before. They had minuscule remnants of bread and meat and potato peels where they could find it. Hunger was a constant way of life. The reason these two pieces of fruit were a true Christmas gift is because they were told that they didn't have to share it that they couldn't share it. Her sister would have the whole apple. Ermgard would have the whole orange to themselves. Within a matter of seconds, was devoured. For a few seconds afterwards, hunger pains weren't there. That was a typical Christmas in war-destitute Germany. Now, you can imagine that family has nothing in terms of money. What they do have, they scrape together and deposit in hopes that again, if their house is broken into, not that anybody wanted the money anyhow, it was pointless. Those large bills that she talks about with a staggering number of zeros, I have real artifacts of that money. They are not copies, they're artifacts. And I show them to the students. I said, if these things could talk, these once transferred hands within Germany. 
that was worth practically nothing. But true to form, Ermgard Hunt's mother would still use that checking account, her little ledger book, for what it was worth. In Ermgard Hunt's book is a picture that is going to turn the stomach of anybody that would see it. You can imagine how starving those children are. And yet, in Ermgard Hunt's mother's pocketbook, little checkbook idea, in her ledger, there is two debits, two entries where Ermgard's Hunt's, Hunt's mother spent money. Every other expense is for the children, except these two. The first donation is to the Nazi party. The second donation is to Adolf Hitler himself. Now on the surface, while you may sit back and you think, no, my gosh, how horrible could that woman be? No, no, this is not our place to judge. That's not the reason I do these podcasts. But if you could think for a moment, what must have been going on in that woman's mind that as she realized that every bit of cents, meaning dollars and cents, rice marks, could possibly put food in her kid's stomach, she actually gave it to a politician. She gave it to a political party. Why would she have done that rather than feed her children? As explained to me, feeding the children satisfied them for a few minutes. Feeding this political party money, when more specifically that man money, could possibly feed her children for the rest of their lives. What possibly could this man, who wasn't even a German, Adolf Hitler, what could he possibly have said to Ermgard Hunt and millions of other Germans that would have swept the Nazis as a political party and Adolf Hitler as a politician into ultimate control of the country of Germany. That's what we'll begin with in the next podcast when we start our several long series within U.S. history, the second half of U.S. history, on World War II. So, Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.